Welcome to Sundays with Stories. My name is Zach Rhodes, and here, as always, with me is Dr. Stanton Beal. Stanton, nice to see you. Great to be with you, Zach. So we're going to jump into another celebrity story this week. I think our idea now is that we're uh, we're going to alternate between uh, a uh, we've got kind of a profile story, and then the next week we'll do a, a real person interview. At least de facto, that's what we've been doing so far. Hopefully we can keep it up. That's what we've got planned right now. And uh, this is a rare event where I'm going to be doing my best Stanton impression. You know, you're the you're kind of the master at pulling the wisdom from real events that happen in culture. And I'm, I have a celebrity story to tell that I know you'll help me kind of scaffold on the way. Before we get to it, uh, let's pull up some current events because I want to try to be good about that too. I have one thing here, and I know you've got something to talk about. There's an article in Filter. It's called DEA Pursues Vast Expansion of Patient Surveillance. Not that this move is really anything new, but it's a well-written article, and it is sort of a, a new upcoming measure written by Ceci. I can't ever pronounce her last name, but she's like uh, one of their uh, on-the-books journalists, always a really good writer. I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs and see if you have any response to it here. It says the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, is looking to expand its anti-diversion surveillance infrastructure by being able to search and analyze myriad patient behaviors for the vast majority of controlled and scheduled drug prescriptions, all accompanied by a rapid process for legally unveiling personally identifying information. In early September, the agency requested proposals for the creation of software capable of searching at least 85% of all U.S. residents controlled substance prescriptions for certain patient behaviors, as well as prescriber pharmacist practices. And so this whole idea is that the DEA wants as much power as they can get to be able to track behaviors to make sure that the drugs that are being prescribed aren't being done problematically. I know that I know your take, but you'll put it into words that I couldn't possibly, so I'd love to hear your reaction here. I used to have a fantasy where they were going to implant nodes in people's brains and then be able to detect what drugs they were using based on um, these implants. What a crazy idea that was. And they didn't have to go to the trouble. All they have to do is track people's lives through the uh, massive data. Of course, I don't want to put her down for this. Maya is a great believer in big data. <clears throat> but, you know, our whole lives now are laid out there like our innards are exposed. And they can tell everything about human beings. And I want to point out that in the mommy state, <clears throat> I'm going to start sounding like a Republican soon. Um, they can, they're trying to help you. They they don't want you to do the wrong thing with these drugs. They don't want you to double down with them. I mean, they could check your credit card receipts and see if you're having too many drinks at home. I wrote about that in Filter as well, where people are drinking more during the pandemic. Yeah. And we're kind of, you know, laying out human beings so that, they live according to certain, not only legal standards, they're going to justify this on the basis of helping people to prevent them from 
suffering from drug abuse or addiction. It's the, uh, you know, mommy state where we're going to be protected from ourselves. People won't make any mistakes. <clears throat> they won't be able to get high or drink again, drink again, intoxicated. And we'll all be better off for it, they're saying. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, how are things going so far, I like to think. Yeah, there's so many problems with it, but the assumption that there is some agency or person that knows best so that if only that person who knows best or agency knows best could track you, then they could prevent all the problems. And that's just a fundamental misstep. And then the idea that even if that were true, that human beings are so one-dimensional that you could, you could you know, have factors, predictive factors, like whether you're using a drug or not, or whether you're giving them to a relative or not, or whether you take two instead of one, that, you know, you could judge that that's problematic or not without any context of other environments. So people should know that that's in our collective consciousness right now. And that's something that people are proceeding with doing. And I think that you and I would argue that for every single argument that a wi otherwise wise, intelligent person puts forward that actually, that actually fuels the disease model, we can expect more and more of these kinds of ideas to blossom and actually be fueled by the very people who they're hurting. And there's both a legal, of course, there's a philosophical legal argument against it, which is who decided that somebody else should run your life. <clears throat> but there's also a psychological addiction argument that this show is predicated on, which is the single best defense against everything, addiction and mental illness, everything that emanates from our, ourselves is feeling in control of your own life and making decisions for yourself because you feel you deserve it and you feel you're capable of it. That's the basis of our, the underlying basis of the Life Process Program. And we're going to stick to it as, I guess, the last two practitioners for in the mental health field, perhaps. Oh, I hope not, but maybe so. We'll move on to, you wrote something, uh, I think it was last night, and your summary of this article that you're about to talk about, if that's still what you're going to talk about, it actually gave me chills. Well, it's it's somebody else's deserves credit for it. Uh, Jennifer Senior is a New York Times writer, and of all the crazy things to happen, she wrote about a man who I knew almost a half a century ago, named Philip Rickman, who uh, went to the University of Michigan in social psychology with me and Carol Tavares, somebody else I know you've interviewed in other circumstances. <clears throat> It may be a wrong memory I have, but I, I seem to remember that Carol had seen Phil Brickman before he jumped from a roof and committed suicide. Mm. And Philip Brickman was a brilliant, brilliant man. And the title of the article is Knowing About Happiness. He wrote about happiness doesn't prevent you from being unhappy. It so happens the article mentions he had just gotten separated from his wife. He was living alone. That's not a good predictor. And he was anxious about his career, although he certainly had a lot of successes. He actually wrote a famous article in American Psychologist that a lot of addiction people refer to. It's a model of who do you think is responsible for your problems and who do you think is responsible for solving your problems. And so you can decide, I'm responsible for my problems, somebody else can solve them, sort of the psychiatric model. Uh, I'm not responsible for my problems and I can't solve them on my own. 
And that's the AA model. Brickman wrote a piece about that. Mm. And um, it's a little, I don't know, he wasn't in AA. It wasn't substance related. But it's possible that he was in that quadrant, that lower right-hand quadrant. Uh, I don't know what's causing my problems. I can't untangle them. There's nothing I'm able to do about it. Uh, and there's nothing I'm able to do about it because uh, he had gone to a psychiatrist, of course. This was the University of Michigan. So, you know, I'm just sitting here. I, uh, I, I, did I get the name of the woman right, Jennifer Senior? Yeah. She's writing about somebody I knew 50 years ago, and they're kind of analyzing what went wrong that a psychologist should know about and write about happiness and kill himself. And so, obviously, I, I think one answer that you and I have is everything that we do is geared towards practical implications. Everything we deal with is asking people what's going on in your life and how is that impacting you. We never stop making that connection. And sometimes uh, that doesn't mean that we're perfect and that everybody can be safe. Um, I didn't know Phil Brickman personally. I, I mean, I, I, I knew of him and I had interacted with him. But I don't know. Do you ever have this feeling, Zach, when you read about somebody famous, something bad happening to them that maybe you could have been able to help them. Do you ever have that imagination? Yes. I at least feel like I, I can deeply sympathize what they were going through enough to articulate it. And maybe if I could articulate it, then that person would have felt heard by one person. And I I run through that scenario a lot. They're too big. I mean, it's, it's, too self-centered to imagine that we could save everybody. That's just wrong. Yeah. But two people I wonder about that, who I admire uh, that way are Anthony Bourdain committed suicide. People often imagine that he committed suicide around his former drug habits because he still drank and he, he was found clean, but he had, he hanged himself in a hotel room I think you and I talk. We, we've talked about love addiction. He seemed to be enmeshed in a relationship that wasn't working for him, perhaps. And then um, the great singer Sarah. What's the English singer? Um, I don't want to go to rehab. Or what's her name? Amy oh, Amy Winehouse. Are you talking Amy about Amy Winehouse? Winehouse. Mm. Um, every but when I talked to people at the time she died, everybody said, "Well, she was taking a lot of drugs." She wasn't taking a lot of drugs, right. and she had just gotten out of rehab, and she drank a lot, and they give you tranquilizers when you leave rehab. That's a, she was a small girl, woman, <clears throat> and that was a bad combination. And uh, they interviewed Tony Bennett afterwards, and Tony Bennett, at one point in his life, he I, he may still be alive. He's well into his 90s. I think he is, had yeah. a big cocaine habit. Mm. And I believe at the time um, that uh, the great comedian uh, died with a needle in his arm. Can you help me out there? Who am I thinking of? Yeah, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. His agent, I think he might have had an agent with Lenny Bruce. The agent said, you know, what are you doing? And Tony Bennett quit. So when they interviewed Tony Bennett after Amy Winehouse's death, 
he said, you know, I wish I could have talked to her. I, and he didn't go to AA or NA or any, didn't appear on, you know, TV interventions. He just got to a point where he quit. Now, she had quit drugs, but obviously she was drinking. She drank an enormous amount that night. And I, I you know, you wonder if somehow some kind and she had just been in rehab and she was seeing a psychiatrist. They all wanted her to abstain. At a minimum, of course, we'd like to think we could have kept her alive, for God's sake, while she matured out, you know. She drank maybe a whole bottle of vodka. you got to explain to people, well, <clears throat> you know, you got to balance this out. You've got to eat. There's safety precautions that you can take to at least stay alive. Yeah. In any case, let's go on to somebody who has stayed alive, and it's somebody that... <clears throat> you know about um i'm not aware of him he's an actor he's a podcaster and he's broadcast his addiction throughout the land so the people are all responding to it and it's a strange long story where he's managed and even enjoyed his drugs now at the same time he's going on and off them and people are saying yeah get off them get off them and rooting for him and he's having these strange second doubts where, of course, as you're aware, he was uh, using drugs over 16 years. And so he had to come back to his N.A. group or his A.A. group. And they said, oh, you're one day sober. And he's sort of part of what he's doing is reflecting to himself, really, have all my 16 years just been thrown out the window? Mm. And I'm just like a newborn after all the positives and negatives i've experienced so why don't you run through tell them who we're talking about and run through his his odyssey of drug use so this is dax shepherd and um back in september this this made headline news that dax shepherd relapsed after 16 years or dax shepherd misled his fans he's this exemplifier of why you know ostensibly aa works so well um, he has people on his podcast, Armchair Expert, really, really bright guy, great actor, has a lot of things going for him. I like him. I like his acting. I think he's a f- he's funny. He's married to Kristen Bell, so he must be the, the one from The Good Place. So he's got to be doing something right. Um, and like you said, he had a blip, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And, you know, he was. I was listening to a podcast and reading this piece that he wrote talking about his relapse, and... Every time it sounded like he's he's about to make sense, like he would say something, and I'd think, ah, there it is. He would chalk that up to, but that's my addiction talking. You know, he's been conditioned to believe and to just put that out there, that anytime you you think that you can sort of overcome or contend with the effects of a drug, it's just your addiction talking. So um, Dax Shepard, an AA guy, he started using drugs and drinking a lot. Um, we could talk about why but we won't. Um, he was, when he was 18 years old, he didn't really use drugs or drink, didn't even really party at all when he was a teen. Some stuff happened in life when he was around 18, and then he devolved into sort of destructive use of cocaine, alcohol. I'm not sure how old he was when he quit, but he wound up going to AA and started living and counting sober days in September of 2005. So September of this year would have been his 16th what do you call it, anniversary or 16th sober year, and people in AA were supposed to be celebrating it. 
Um, but he was found out to have been taking painkillers all the while and sort of in a destructive way, that a way that caused him some sort of impairment, and he was dishonest about it. So he actually wound up telling more than just that story of how he, you know, quote-unquote, screwed up and, and took painkillers. He told a little more depth of a story. So in 2012, this is when he was around eight years sober, his dad was dying of cancer. And so, at least as far as he says, he never drank, never did a drug, didn't think about it too much for eight years, from 2005 to 2012. He didn't have anything in common with his dad, but he knew he had to take care of him. So he's visiting, flying back and forth between home and, and the hospital where his dad was. And in the meantime, he got in a motorcycle accident, and he was prescribed Vicodin. And so this made him nervous because he's supposed to be sober. Can I really take a painkiller? And after talking to his sponsor, you know, they talked about how um, painkillers, opiates, they're not really his addiction. His thing is alcohol and cocaine, and he should worry about that. So his sponsor said, listen, I'll give you my, as if, as though he can give permission. He said, uh, just take them, but have Kristen, his wife is Kristen Bell, hand them out to you. And she can sort of keep tabs on the painkillers and give them to you when you're supposed to take them. And then you can kind of still be in the sober club. So after he was prescribed these painkillers for his motorcycle accident, seems like a pretty reasonable time to start taking painkillers. Uh, he was hanging out with his dad and he decided not to take his drugs with him. He said, you know what, since Kristen won't be there to give them to me, I'm not going to bring them. So when he was hanging out with his dad, kind of watching the sunset over a lake at one point, his dad was taking painkillers and the doctors gave him the painkillers to give to his father. And he looked at it, and I think it was either Vicodin or Percocet. It's the very same thing he was prescribed. So he made this, came up with the idea, I'm in pain. I'm going to take one of what my dad's taking, and I'm going to take it just the same way I'm supposed to be taking mine. So, you know, he was kind of feeling a little buzz or feel a little stoned off of him, which as a person who's been taking opiates for, for a long time or used to take opiates for a long time, I can't imagine feeling that way off of just one Vicodin, but I digress. So he and his dad, he, started, he was sort of describing how he felt for the very first time ever. He's sitting there, taking some painkillers with his dad, looking out at the sunset. It's like, wow, I'm really having a good time with you. I'm feeling relaxed. This feels good. And it's taking care of my pain. And so, great. So he Damn, started... drugs are good, great, aren't they? I, they invented them. I, I know, and I imagine it's like he's... This is the beginning of him listing the things he has to flog himself for. So, you know, he's taking drugs and it made him feel good. And he's sitting there with his dad and he can relate to him, if only because they're both sort of feeling the same way in the same setting. So he started, um, he liked the feeling and he noticed that when he was taking the, his dad's drugs at night, he kept it up for a couple of days. When he was taking them at night, uh, they made him feel weird and he couldn't sleep. So he decided to save the one from that he would have taken at night, and he doubled up in the morning because he liked the feeling. And then he started feeling guilty about it. When he got back, actually, his wife came to visit him. And so he told her about it right away, and they discussed it. And he said, you know what, I, I'm feeling weird about this. For, this is not, like, I shouldn't be taking things off-label, and I shouldn't be making decisions like that to double up. I should be doing them as a doctor prescribed. And she said, uh, he, was, he was thinking, should I not count this as sober days? And her quote to him was, maybe you should call someone an AA, but I would say you're fucked up from this accident. 
you got high with your dad, keep it moving. Which, isn't that the most, like, practical thing to say? I mean, look, you had a rough time. You took painkillers for pain. Uh, let's go on with life. So it's a difference between priesthood and a good therapist. A good therapist is aware of your life and your feelings. A priest doesn't give you any um, uh, any break, you know. You're yeah. on or off, you know what I mean? You can only uh, – there's only one way to do it. And uh, a human being, uh, dealing with a human being in therapy, and actually obviously mm. many priests are aware of that, of course – they just not allowed to tell Rome about it. But okay, so his wife yeah. <laughs> is having a sensible reaction. Yes. And saying, well, let's add two and two together. You're in pain. And you had this communion with your father. I'm going to say, you know, whatever it is you're doing, that's not a sin against AA. Right. So this should be sort of a, an experience. Okay, maybe it, I shouldn't say what should or shouldn't be. But if this were me and my wife, which it kind of sounds like the kind of thing that my wife and I could get into and something she might say, I would think, wow, this really shows me that I can talk to you about this stuff and you're not going to get down on me. We're just going to like talk about it reasonably and maybe I'm not so crazy after all. So it's just something important to remember. Uh, Dax added in a podcast episode that he did when he was sort of telling on himself that he didn't really feel powerless. He didn't feel like he was compelled to take these drugs. That he, he said, I've had experiences of going on benders and drinking, doing coke. And uh, I remember feeling like I wasn't really in control of that behavior for various reasons. But right now, that's not what was happening. And he said, this is a quote from him. He said, so this experience was really confusing because it didn't feel like a relapse. In other words, he was taking these drugs in a pretty calculated way for reasons. And it didn't feel like he was doing so uncontrollably. He just stopped. So he got hurt again somewhat recently. I think it was just before the summer of 2020. So June. And mind you, of course, you know that this is amid the pandemic. We knew even less about it then than we do now. And uh, after he got hurt, he was prescribed painkillers again. He, he said that for a while he never administered them to himself. He made calculations about not taking the pills at night, uh, just like he did before. He would not take the pills at night, double up in the morning instead. And then when he did that, he said, oh, then I started feeling like I was being shady, like he was doing something dishonest. And um, he'd go out and ride his motorcycle a lot. Uh, and then when he was done at the track, which was when he'd be in more pain, he'd double up on his prescription again. And he said, and things got shadier and shadier, like he's he's telling on himself right now for doing something horrible. And maybe that's not, maybe doubling up is not the most responsible way to use these things, but you no, know, he's, he talks about this as like the, this is where it all started and it only went downhill from here. And he said uh, he moved from just taking the pills from his prescription to actually, once the prescriptions ran out, he didn't go back to the doctor and say, Hey, I've been doubling up. I need more. And he didn't say I'm in really bad pain. Can you prescribe me more? Instead of talking to anybody, he, he went out and he was buying for, on the street or from someone he knew. He was buying 30 milligram oxys. Um, and then he started taking them whenever he needed them. Pretty rich guy. I can imagine he could afford whatever he needed as long as someone was supplied. So here's the, here's the interesting thing. As he was – there's anyone who's taken opioids will know that there's a big difference between 
a Vicodin, which is like a, I think it's like five milligrams of actual opiate and then something like double in Tylenol. There's a big difference between taking that and a 30 milligram Oxycontin. And then you're starting to get into like, oh, this is why they make painkillers. It actually didn't care of my pain. So he, he noticed that he was getting higher. He was kind of feeling that um, psychological effect. And he actually practiced harm reduction. And this is where, right in this podcast episode, uh, or maybe it was in the article, he was talking about, no, it was in the podcast. He was talking about, and this is, he was talking about his stinking thinking, which is an AA term. Like if you try to rationalize or provide reasons why you might be taking drugs or why it could be okay and why they might not, you know, be a lifelong threat, then that's stinking thinking. That's just your addiction talking. But uh, by the way, I should note that my yeah. old collaborator, a wonderful, brilliant woman, Ilsa Thompson, mm. at, for a while ran a, a, a listserv, a web group about anti-AA group, and she had been through it. And it was called stinking thinking. That's fine. And it's sort of a double entendre. On the one hand, it's like, who's thinking is stinking? It's yeah. theirs. And on the other hand, it points out stinking thinking is a funny term. It's saying, you know how you're trying to think through your life and be uh, stinking thinking is sort of the flip side of mindfulness, isn't it? Yeah. So he, um, he was making, he created this list of why, you know, there's ra over rationalization and saying, this is, this is just my addiction talking as if to say, listen to my list and you'll realize how stupid this was for me to think it. Well, it's taking 30 milligram oxys. So he didn't take the pills until 4 PM. And that way uh, he could sleep because he wouldn't be jonesing, but he also wouldn't be taking them just before bed because he knew that messed him up. He took stool softeners because he knew that uh, one effect of the drug is that it can make you constipated. So he took stool softeners so he'd ameliorate that. He made sure to keep up with the home and health. He was a good husband, he was a good dad, continued taking care of his responsibilities, working. He was still doing his interviews. He felt like everything he was doing was manageable. And so I would call that harm reduction. Like. It, he decided he's going to take the drug. He decided he likes the way it feels. And maybe there was some reasoning that he could have done between taking the drug and um, and why he was doing it. And maybe he'd make a different decision. But in, insofar as he was going to take it, it, he was practicing harm reduction. So he felt like he was being okay. And if things went as they did when he took the drugs when he was with his dad, um, you know, history would show that if things were starting to get bad, he'd just kind of stop taking them. Uh, but then people, uh, namely his co-worker, I said namely, but now I can't remember her name, the person who co-hosts the podcast, started asking him, you seem like you're different. Like he'd have a little different energy or his, his eyes were dilated. Um, no indication that he was behaving in some like mal way, but that he would just seem different. And so instead of telling people, All right, well, I've been taking painkillers. You know, there's no one to, he felt like there's no one to talk to because there's this whole essence that he's built around this sober guy. He's preached it to his whole audience. I'm this AA guy. I have this much sobriety. People look up to him. So he didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell his wife. He hid it. And he actually turned back to the drugs for a source of relief because he didn't have anyone to talk to. That's where, obviously, 
people get into trouble. If the drug's not working for you, and instead of saying, I wonder why this isn't working, I better sort this out, you turn back into the drug, and you put your focus on it, and you sort of phase out focus on other aspects of life, that's where you and I would start talking about, all right, this person's on that spectrum of addiction somewhere on the scale. Um, but he didn't have anyone to talk to, so he lost. He didn't have that resource, at least in his own mind. He decided. Well, you called it harm reduction. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the history of the world, perhaps you've heard, have taken drugs, opioids, and others, yeah. and consumed alcohol. Yes. And they've done it for the craziest, stupidest human reasons. They were nervous. They were anxious. They enjoyed it. It, they needed to relax. Um, they're living their lives. And I even sometimes have a hard time with the term harm reduction. Yeah. Which implies, well, you're doing something wrong. Let's minimize the negatives. Right, right. Dak was living his life, a complicated life, fulfilling his obligations, having relationships with his wife, his children, his coworkers, his father. And like, an awful lot of human beings in the history of the world, he was assisting himself with some kind of chemical. Yeah, I know. Uh, there, there was a nice, saleable way to say, like, uh, side effect mitigation or something like that. That's really what he was doing. He was trying to use the drugs. It's, it, it, is it too far to say he was trying to use the drugs in a constructive way? Would that be going too far? I think he was trying to use the drugs in a constructive way. While at the same time, you know, there's this, he could only do that in this corner of his being where he couldn't talk to anybody about it. Like, because he was not allowed to use the drugs at all. Right. And once you're not allowed to use the drugs at all, the question of harm reduction, A, or using drugs in the best manner possible, you're not allowed to do that. And there's nowhere to get counseling for that. Right. if you use psychedelic, the places you can do that, it's, right now we have psychedelic drug therapy, and you can talk to a mental health counselor who will say something to you like, well, this is how best to use the drug and to prepare for it and to react to it. You can get a guided usage of the drug. You're not allowed to do that with other drugs that we're talking about. Right. Nobody's allowed to give you any pointers Nobody's allowed to tell uh, Amy Winehouse, well, you know, if you're going to drink, don't take tranquilizers. You know what I mean? Um, Probably don't take a bottle to bed with you. You know, there's a better and a worse way to do all of this. We talked about Carol Tavris earlier in a different context, but this is really needing to reduce dissonance because uh, there's this practical side of him that said, I'm in pain. I want to feel some way. And like I know how to get this feeling and it's pretty easy and seems to come with not that much risk. I mean, sometimes I'm constipated, but I could figure that out. And at the same time, he knows that there's a story that he's sort of participated in that he can't do that or else he's doomed. And he has to believe both of those things at the same time. Can't possibly, they're not compatible. And so as he's taking drugs for whatever practical reasons, maybe for for some other reason that's not practical, who knows? He can't talk to anybody. There's no therapy, as you mentioned, that's going to help him out. And it doesn't help that he's a household name. So it's not like he's uh, anyone he talks to. There's always that fear of he just makes a headline. 
Well, he's also doing a podcast based predicated on his sobriety. Right. That's true. That's true. He's got to go and talk about he's it again. Got, he's got a brand. Yeah. I don't know if right. you're ready to, to jump to this point in the story, but um, after he confesses, people's reactions are to me, stunning. Are we at that place in the narrative yet? I'm almost. I'm almost there. Let me. I'm looking at uh, like a bullet point, so I don't miss anything. And we're r- oh, right good. there. So let me go through. Well it. done. Uh, so I think I just mentioned we've been talking about it in spades. Instead of telling people he lied about it, uh, turned back to that. Yeah, we talked about that. So he turned back to the drugs for to be able to feel okay with that dissonance that we were just talking about. So he decided to do this taper. You said there's not really any great therapy for this he just sort of decided on his own maybe i could taper by i'll just take eight he was up to eight thirties a day which is a lot i mean that's starting to get destructive and that's he started doing that once he was turning back to the drugs to avoid that feeling of dissonance uh so arguably he was not going you know he's not on a trajectory to really overuse these drugs until there's some turmoil he was facing that he felt like he couldn't talk about so he was saying, all right, maybe if I just use eight today and then seven tomorrow, maybe it'll work that way. And for whatever reasons, it just didn't work out. And he started just – his only focus was on these drugs. How many do I have left? Is it possible for me to take less? No, I can't. And so he just he, he just gave up, and he said uh, – his last lie to his colleague, he said, was that he had was having an arthritis flare-up. And then as he said it – he realized, ah, oh, man, I cannot keep this facade on. So he decided to come clean both to his colleague and his wife at the same time. And uh, he gave them, handed them the pills that he had and asked them, all right, can you help me out? Let's talk about, can we talk about this? Before we even go on, I should say the idea that you can come, I hate to use the word clean, has been hijacked, but come clean to a person and, uh, and say, well, here are the drugs. That in itself defies the, you know, it's got a hold on you idea. And I I take him at his word that he handed them drugs and they said that he did. Now here's where you were talking about. He's got to go back and decide what he's going to do about it's, it's, it's about to be his 16 year uh, celebration. So he's got to decide what to do about his AA buddies. So he felt, I have to come clean. I mean, I've got to come clean, and once I do, unfortunately, I'm not going to have my 16 years of sobriety. Um, that that celebration was about to happen. I can't do it. But he said there would be so much embarrassment. I mean, he didn't want to – and also, he didn't want to go back down to just one day, uh, so he didn't tell him. And the reason why I didn't want to go back to just one day of sobriety instead of 16 years plus there's a little blip along the way kind of a story is that – this is how you rationalize it. If this is a quote, if I only had one day, I might say, screw it. And then just give myself an opportunity to drink and do Coke. Why not do the drugs I really want to do? And then who knows, uh, you know, it's like the slippery slope argument. Who knows if I could ever stop or how long it would be. And if I do that, I might not be able to get back in that cage and I may die. It's like really catastrophizing. Uh, but he decided finally, oh, you were, were you going to interject there? And all of this is an illustration. He got himself depressed and in the corner. Yeah. Not because of the drugs, but because of belonging to AA. Um, 
he got to this point of, well, it's not exactly that I'm dependent on the drug, but if I quit the drug and say I only have one day sobriety, then I might start taking cocaine and drinking again, which are bad drugs for me. Right. I mean, we're talking about addiction, and he's a, a, a graphic illustration of what a mind game addiction is and how counterproductive abstinence only and 12-step thinking are in that in that negotiation of life. People talk about stigma being harmful in and of itself, and this is a great example. Um, you know, so he... But it's the stigma induced by AA, yeah, not the exactly. stigma of taking the drug. It's, right, that's true. There's a stigma associated with taking the drug induced by AA. And uh, you know you gotta oh, throw you gotta throw your first principles and ideas about yourself out the window because there's this AA rule. It's really bizarre. Um, he finally, well, I should say after he went to AA and he actually went through uh, confessed. He well before he confessed, he actually went through with this party and celebration for him. They had his cake. They said, "Oh, congratulations, oh, sixteen years!" And he's got to play along. He said he actually took drugs that day. Yeah, uh, to get through, <laughs> to get through. I shouldn't laugh, but it's just so ironic. And um, so he finally told people a, a partial truth. I took drugs to get through my 16-year <laughs> AA abstinence sobriety <laughs> celebration. Yeah, right, because I couldn't face that. Because I was lying to everybody. My, you know, my wife and my colleague knew I'm about to have to tell. A, it's like, all right, one more hurrah, so I can just get through this pain. So bizarre, and uh, he. He finally told us this person that's it's, uh, an elder, I guess you'd say a mentor. He said, uh, you know, told him everything that happened. And you mentioned to him, you know, I kind of had this feeling that people only appreciate me and love me because I'm sober and uh, not because I'm the person that I am. And, uh, and so I was afraid to tell everybody because of that. I needed to preserve myself. And his AA sponsor told him, You're, they'd love to talk about character defects in AA. Um, rather than like opportunities for growth, as you might say, your number one character defect is your arrogance. You think you can outsmart addiction, you're just being arrogant. And the only antidote to this is humility. So you've got to go tell everybody about your slip up and that you finally show humility and get this whole thing over with. And humility has the same root word as humiliation. That's what I think you meant by humility there, it sounds like. Yeah. You, and not you have to show humility in terms of you have to show, you have to show somehow that you're not better than everybody. He really seemed to mean like you have to go humiliate yourself. Um, so he did it. He told everybody. And then, of course, he couldn't tell his whole group while carrying on with the any sort of facade publicly or else that was going to come up. And maybe just ethically he didn't want to do that anyway. So he detoxed. It couldn't have been like that grueling, but he said it, it felt like crap. It gave him some sympathy for people who have had to do it themselves. And uh, then he admitted all this and said, on his podcast in September, he said, now I've got to reset my sobriety clock. I only have seven days at this point. So it's like, I'll let you uh, talk. I have some things that I might want to add, but you, you'll probably cover them if I can. But then uh, you. you mentioned that a lot of people wrote in congratulating him for his honesty. And Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he's – this bugged me so much. He had 16 years of great thinking. And so he's – talk about AA, your, your best thinking got you here. And yeah, that's actually true. He he had some great insights over the last 16 years that 
he was really bogged down by the ideology of AA because he couldn't actually make decisions that meant something in his life because he had to stick to the script. And so instead of saying, I have 16 years of all these experiences and ideas and experiments, he said... And, we're, and having a good relationship with his wife, it sounds like, being good yeah, father. Yeah, yeah. Having a little bit of a final a communion with his father that he hadn't had in the past, which is why people take drugs. Um, being, you know, he's successful. He has a podcast that people like. I mean, if he's to be rated as a zero that everybody else is below zero. He's an unusually positive and productive right. man, other than the guilt trips he was laying on himself and others were laying on him. And now it gets to the point, it reminds me of why Donald Trump is so successful as a bully. I wrote about this in Psychology Today. Remember, You have to really beat people up if they do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And then when they kiss your butt, then you say, oh, they're the greatest. I love them the most. So now that he's confessed to what a schmuck he is, how badly he's behaved, how he's a zero. Now he gets all the positive reinforcement. Where did I write this down? Oh, yeah. So Brene, do you know about Brene Brown? No. Uh, I think she's a professor, like a sociology professor somewhere. She got, she sort of like the same trajectory as Johan Hari. He stood up and said, everything you know about drugs is wrong. And millions of views. Uh, we can talk about that, but. Brene Brown went on. She's this person who's like a, a motivator, but she set, she keeps it real. Like, you know, she'll talk about how she's feeling in terms of uh, right now I feel my fat sticking out of my shirt. And people say, oh, that's, you know, you're being really real and honest. Anyway, she's very famous now and uh, for sometimes for good reason. But she wrote to him, I think this is on Twitter, good for you, Dax. Recovery journeys are long and difficult and the most incredible part of our lives. Your honesty is an important reminder we're not alone in the dark, shitty day, uh, on the dark, shitty days. And we're not alone on the brand new first days. It's just like this guy's being celebrated. He lied to everybody. He, he made weird, bizarre decisions because he was, you know, relying on dogma to lead him somewhere. And then when he made bad decisions that didn't align with all that stuff, he lied to everybody about it. And now instead of saying, hey, this feels kind of weird, you lied or saying, uh, hey, maybe AA is not the great, you know, this whole thing you're practicing, it got you here. I mean, it, is there something you want to talk about? It's it's very, it seems very narcissistic. I like the guy, but it's really self-absorbed, and now people are celebrating things that, you know, you want to support him, but I, there are things that are being celebrated, and they're smuggled in as a celebration that really I don't feel should be celebrated. Well, in the Life Process Program, in our experience, people don't come to addiction treatment at a point when they're feeling great about themselves. That's kind of a rule of thumb. Right. I, uh, the Life Process Program I developed for a residential rehab, people were in bad shape when they arrived. Um, um, you didn't need to run them down more. That wasn't right. what they were most missing in life. <clears throat> and what you often had to do was to gather them up rather than talking about all the sins they had committed and how many drugs they were taking. They, they knew how to talk about that. They, 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 you weren't the first person they had listed all of their flaws right. to. Right. Um, what you really had to do was to build them up and go through their lives and point out the points where they made good decisions, which is what you were just doing right now. 
you were saying, well, you know, a lot of his decisions were reasonable. They were maybe the best ones in that circumstance. They had positive consequences. If he didn't like the whole mix, then maybe he could remix this. He could figure out what, how to keep the positive and how to eliminate the negative. And the best way to do that is, of course, to identify what's positive and what's negative, to take pride in the positives that you uh, establish, because that's how people change. People change at the most and the best when they're feeling the strongest about who they are and what their lives mean. And here, AA never got this. If you, if you, if he had, this isn't his story, but if he had been 15 years perfect and he had a sip of rum in his coffee in the morning, then he has to go back and say, I'm a zero. All of those previous years are worthless. Nothing I did is worth saying something positive. And by implication, I'm worthless. My whole life, I've just thrown out the window. And that's the exact opposite of what everybody knows. To be. You would never say to a child, um, you know, let's say you said, well, don't bite your nails. And he hadn't bitten his nails for six months and he bit his nails one morning. You wouldn't say, oh, for God's sake, it's all out the window now. You're back exactly to that nut nail biter or wed better bed better that you were before. And that's the through line of our book. What can you say? Why do people tend not to say those things to children? You say it. Well, because children, there's there's a known aspect of what it means to be a child that you're developing as you grow older chronologically. When you're a child, there are clear stages of development that you're going to go through. So, you know, even if nothing else, even if not the practical, like, you know, it's just better to a lot of people when they're doing something positive, praise them for their effort. And then, you know, don't be too hard on them. It's not like it's going to help to tell them there's something horrible that they already knew. There's also the element that they're developing. They're going to change over time and they've got time to get better. And for some reason, we don't generalize that to adults. We know that adults go through stages of development too, but we don't think about adults that way. We still think of them as this, uh, you know, done growing kind of a slate. And the thing that we do with both children and adults in therapy is to say, well, you've done better and you've done worse. Let's think about how you were feeling and what led you to be do better and right. what you were thinking and what led you to do worse. Right. Those are situational things. They're your way of thinking. That's called cognitive behavior therapy. And we want to maximize the positive. You wanted to... Um, Last week, you had that fabulous interview with Jason. Yeah. A remarkable story, and it actually only went a half hour. It's our all-time record. <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of room for you to say some evident things that kind of occurred to you a little bit in connection with Dak. They raised these issues with Jason for you. So let me, if I can go through there's a couple notes that i pulled out just as a summary of what the story we just told and then link that to jason and people like jason who people haven't heard it's last week's episode um so aa kind of forced dax shepherd to submerge his true relationship with drugs and his basis for taking or not taking them he was actually thoughtful about when and how the set and setting in which he took drugs and the purpose they served but he couldn't tell this to anybody, his wife or colleague. 
because uh, they would see him as an addict and he's got this persona. He's got, you called it a brand, which is perfectly put. Kind of practiced harm reduction, but called it his addict brain at work. Like, oh, I, I did this stuff to minimize the side effects, but oh, I'm just being an idiot. Uh, he still believes to this day that he can't ever touch alcohol or, or cocaine or he might die because he's powerless. Because he's in AA, he now has to talk about his entire 16-year experience bettering his life, um, which he's got a wife and a successful career, a podcast, likable. I still like him despite all this strangeness. He's got to call it a wash, and now he's just on days long sobriety like he didn't learn anything else he did use drugs and that did cause him impairment and distress um but it's not clear that that would have happened if he didn't have to also follow these two sets of rules but he noticed it was causing disruption in his life and he took all the necessary steps to kick the habit before it got any worse so that's kind of our like he moved away from addiction and he didn't do it with therapy so he had for if he was addicted he kind of just moved on and this a didn't help him because he had to actually go tell himself to AA. So all that to say, and then he gets this uh, outpouring of support, which is fine to have support, but he's being like, we're so proud of you for doing this. Oh, you're telling this story on yourself. Oh, you're telling on yourself. It's so good. As if to say, and somebody could have looked at his life and said, you've managed your life fairly well. And in doing so, obviously he's helped by the fact that he's a very talented person. He's at the top of the social network. He's very much admired. And when you look at how much of a drawback, a downside AA seems to have been, you wonder how much, how these same ingredients add up when you think about the, uh, Netflix has just removed the, uh, has just released Hillbilly Elegy. Is that the name of it? or Hillbilly Elegy, the J.D. Vance? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And oh, I didn't know he, that. Cool. He came out okay, but he lived among people that had a lot of problems. Yeah. And yeah. we often, fo- we don't hear about those people, except exactly. in Hillbilly Elegy. Exactly. And they're sort of looked at as like a foreign tribe. But Jason's a man who didn't have those advantages. And in fact, he went to prison. And yeah. rich people go to prison less than poor people, even when they do the same things. We don't have to get into all of that. Uh, uh, Trump is going to, you know, uh, pardon a number of people who've committed what are ordinarily called crimes. And so Jason is laboring under, he's going through, he went through things like that, but he saddled with them for life. Pick, exactly. Maybe pick it up from there. Exactly. The Jason- Look, the story that Dak's got to tell, like he was able to tell the story and sort of, create the fairy tale out of it and i kind of think it must be nice you know that you get to do that and that actually the, the story could have been like all the other stories we're telling it could have been uh i took drugs that made me feel good like when i was using it with my dad and then i used them a little more after that but i chatted with my wife about it and decided that uh, i didn't want to take so many no hollywood movie no event no good podcast no nothing for you and i to discuss now and instead, he had to concentrate on and overanalyze his taking of drugs and add it in this moral component uh, that he because he needed to lie about his experience. As I said, it must be nice to be a person who can go through this relapse and then be congratulated for regaining your composure, as opposed to someone like Jason, who I talked to last week, 
uh, or someone like like Aaron, who got slipped through and was lucky. But, you know, Jason caught some felonies because of his addiction and he didn't have a support system. He doesn't get to look back and make up whatever story he wants about why he was taking drugs. He had to actually do something about his misfortune and, you know, thank by the grace of God, somehow with felonies on his record, even though he can't, he can't even get a job, even when he has the skills for them, places want to hire him. And then they say, ah, oh, technically we can't. Yeah. Jason in a sense is lucky because he's not, wasn't, doesn't have the same fate as some other people that we think about, talk about. Some people just get arrested and then that's it for them. You know, some people could take a drug and then they're they're locked up. Or some people could take a drug, like the people in Oregon now. And, uh, you know, if you're underprivileged, under-resourced, impoverished there, if you take a drug, we're saying that we're being really nice to people, but really we're, uh, we can shuffle them into some kind of coerced drug treatment. Dax Shepard doesn't have what, to worry that's about That's what happened to Aaron. He, Aaron's story of a couple of weeks ago, he ended up in a court-imposed TC, and I, I was sort of naive enough when I not on the podcast, they said, well, couldn't you go home at night? Uh, uh, you know, I'm living in a different universe uh, than a lot of people. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and they don't let you go home when you're in a court-imposed uh, a therapeutic community. So Dak is being celebrated for whatever he his narrative is. He's being supported. And when people listen to the Jason story, which I really, I, I hope they will, he drives a truck now. He's got it. He's a single parent of a child. He's doing well with it. He keeps a positive outlook, but he describes having, is it, does he have like uh, software computing skills? Yeah. He had, he was, he was offered a job by three people in the state government. They all liked him. He's cleaned up. He's a solid citizen. You can tell he's highly intelligent, but he has a felony. Yeah. So he can't get that job. So we're looking at the two worlds of addiction and the differences in the two worlds of addiction. We can talk about, well, the nature of the addiction, their way of thinking about it, their way of dealing with it. But there's one world of addiction where they just fall on you like a ton of bricks and another world where they sort of celebrate you. Oh, look, you were addicted yes. and now you're doing something about it. Yeah. And Jason doesn't live in that world. And, you know, you and I more or less, we live in a good place more or less. You know, People talk I, I mean? two sides. I would like to see Brene Brown choose a person who, you know, doesn't have any sort of status. Maybe they have three Twitter followers if they even have a Twitter account. Uh, they probably live in a single room, you know, studio apartment somewhere that's a little shabby and run down in a bad neighborhood who who had a slip with drugs. And then I want to see her say, congratulations. Oh, amazing. Because you know what? People are there for you, whether it's your worst day or your best day. You don't see that. Like you say, people come down like a ton of bricks on a certain kind of person. And I don't fault Dax for being a good guy and needing support and wanting support and he deserves it and he should work to continue to deserve it. But I'm not, this is not about him. It's about just our society and our views about what addiction is and who gets to have, you know, the, who gets the pleasure of being able to tell whatever story they feel like telling about themselves and who gets the misfortune of having the stories told for them. And if we switch all of this around to a way of thinking, which 
you know, is um, uh, a, a famous psychologist has written about how he's changed from looking at psycholo- psychology. I, I am I'm a pro scientific guy, but the most scientific way to look at people's lives is in terms of their life stories yeah. and their narratives. And if you look at that and you look the pull and the tug, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, how they get to a stronger place, Dak and Jason were telling the same story. Yes. But they live in two different universes. Mm. Um, and uh, both of those universes have painful and negative aspects. Dak tearing himself apart. And Jason, a good guy, I don't know what it's like when you have to drive a truck and you're the single parent, but nobody's going to cut him a break. And the narrative in both cases is they went through a period with better and worse things happened. They developed as human beings. They have a positive outlook. They want to do the right thing and people want to help them. And and one person just can't escape the pities. And that one person, they're more of him around than Dax around yes and so uh the bottom line of that that message in those th- the two adjoining cases this one where we're looking at it as third parties and the one last week where you talk to a man who's actually experiencing it is a social and political and economic context you know i hate to get you know all socialist on people but the larger context determines so much of what we view as clinical yeah. So whereas uh, a, a story like Jason's, who's is ubiquitous, uh, we can actually learn something from that story. That's useful because that's really what someone's experience is like. Uh, it's maybe it makes us feel good to hear a celebrity story about how he screwed up with AA and he has to start recounting his days and things like that. But that you don't do anything practical with that or anything helpful or anything that's going to really enhance your life. It's a it's. Well, people are, I'm, I don't want them to get down on me for putting down the Catholic Church. It's like a superimposed <laughs> artificial structure imposed on the reality of being human. And it's just like another house to bear on your back. Yep. yep. Well, all right. We've been talking forever, Zach. I'm afraid to look at how much time it's been. It must yeah, be don't over. look. No. Don't look. But thank you so much for, uh, you know, helping me get through that story and make something good and practical of that. And, We'll talk and let again. me thank you, Dak, for listening, um, Zach, for listening to Dak's real life story yeah. and for deconstructing it and for seeing the reality behind the frame, which is what this whole podcast is about. We just, Dax Shepard, Brene Brown, the Catholic Church, society, uh, the addiction treatment field. I don't know who's left, but someone out there is going to be our best friend. That's how we know that we, we like them. And Jason and Phil Brickman, we've covered it all, really. The <laughs> DEA, it's, uh, we haven't left that, and Donald Trump, we've, we haven't left much out. Hope it's all helpful right, for people. I do another great Sunday, Zach. Have a great week and uh, Thanksgiving. You too. Talk to you next Bye time. Bye now.